Welcome to episode 18 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Jesse Allison, a professor of experimental music and digital media at Louisiana State University, about how he uses open source software and technology to expand what is possible in the sonic arts. Hi, Jesse. Thank you for being with us today. Could you please introduce yourself and explain your research on experimental music and digital media? Sure, sure. And thanks for having me. This is fun. Um, so I am a professor of experimental music and digital media, and it's an interesting position where I get to be halftime in the School of Music doing concerts and performances and composition, and then halftime at the Center for uh, Computation and Technology, uh, where I get to do research and uh, development of R&D in, in technology and sound um, Everything to do with sound, really, from building instruments and uh, electronic interfaces to doing things with the web to doing things on supercomputers and uh, HPCs. So it's a it's an interesting place, and uh, we really go by that experimental side of things, where we're, whether we're experimenting with uh, different technology and how it might be used in music, or exper experimenting with what kinds of music could be made or should be made uh, with all these new uh, developments in technology. In which way do you think it is possible to expand the experience surrounding the ubiquitous, for everyone, act of listening to music? Because music is all around us, but how, how do you push that forward to expand on this? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, an interesting set, right? Because we have both the listening to music and then we've also got the production of music. And both spots have, have places where we can innovate. And I, I don't use that term lightly, the innovation side of things. I, I really think that... Uh, Musicians are always trying different things, whether it's uh, or trying to convey new things, uh, trying to, you know, make interesting sounds, interesting uh, different types of music, styles of music and that sort of thing. And so it, it makes a lot of sense when we have all of this crazy um, developments in technology right now that we would try to figure out ways to make music with it. Right. And how to understand it. Like that's one of the great things about music is that it's a lot of times a kind of a processing of what's going on in society or in our lives. And technology is a huge part of that. So when, when we look at expanding the experience, you know, surrounding music, um, one way is just through the way that we consume it, right. Through, uh, broadcasting in different ways, through streaming, like the whole industry of podcasting, you know, was, did not exist Uh, 10 years ago, it was barely getting rolling and definitely not enough to support people. But now it's a few, huge industry. Being able to share things online, being able to have things be collaborative, right? So the, uh, there are simple, interesting sort of ways that, that that goes on where you might post something online, but then have everybody be able to comment on it. So while you're listening to it, you can see what other people's comments are. And to things that are more complex, like various uh, broadcasting groups like the BBC have been trying out things where they have different streams of audio. So uh, during an event, like a, a football game, right, uh, you may be able to uh, listen to the sound of the crowd from the side of the team that you're on, right, so that you can hear all the cheering that's going along with you as opposed to, you know, against your team. And it's really interesting. Or from the sidelines or all that sort of thing. You can just kind of switch between these experiences. So those are, those are sort of innovative ways of, of experiencing it. I kind of like the next step, which is where the people who are generating music are trying to experiment with stuff so that you might be, have someone who's performing a concert and that's being streamed out to everybody's who's listening. Right. And you can do a video stream and everything, 
But we've had a student a couple years ago where we built a, a framework, an open source one actually, that actually pro- performed on your computer. So if you went to the website, he was actually performing, and it was making your your browser into a performance space, right? Pulling up maps and audio and playing video files and and that sort of thing. But he was just performing live in your browser, um, wherever you were in the world. So it's just kind of like the things like that are just interesting and, and are products of our time, right? The kinds of music that can be made today. Um, and it's being experimented with or tried, tried to do. Okay. Uh, is there any way or places where our listeners can experience some of your projects? <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. Uh, the the great thing about this is they are. They, I mean, these are live. Yeah, they're live performances. They are absolutely ephemeral. They are. Um, they happen. They're, in fact, we a lot of times we call our events happenings because it kind of ties back to the experimental art world of of the fifties, sixties, seventies. Because they 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 are events. So can they experience them? It's not quite the same thing, but you can find documentation of them and listen to things and see videos and, and that sort of stuff. Um, the best places to look would be uh, like the stuff here on campus is uh, EMDM for Experimental Music Digital Media, emdm.lsu.edu. And we have documentation and stuff up there. And then on most of the social media platforms, um, like up on, we go by the handle of LSU EMDM. And that, uh, so we have a YouTube channel that has videos of our laptop orchestra performing, um, or we have, uh, you know, images up on Flickr and, uh, you know, just stuff out there. We also have a GitHub repo where we, we store a lot of <laughs> developmental code, <laughs> but things that we use for our own, uh, uh, just creating of these artworks. Um, you can also find my own work at alisonic.com and that's where, that's where I post my things. Do you mind if we include some of it as the outro music for this episode? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you betcha. There's a beauty in both arts and sciences. Do you feel that they can intersect under certain circumstances? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course I do. Um, I think it's funny that, you know, throughout history, uh, arts and sciences has developed together, right? You rarely... You rarely hear the phrase separated. It's almost yeah. always spoken as arts and sciences. And I think the, you know, the origins of that are, are from the sort of philosophers and, and the great thinkers of the last couple thousand years, um, where the, the, the separation between arts and, and science and craft and practice and all these sorts of things had a lot less delineated lines between them. One of the things I love to talk with my, um, younger kids, right, is to talk about that idea of the harmony of the spheres and where, you know, the, the idea that the when you looked in the sky a couple thousand years ago, you saw these patterns that developed and you talked about them as being harmonious and, and with the same terminology and the same words as you, you would use for music, because that was, an, the, they, the terms were, um, they were able to describe things in the, that you were seeing and witnessing over in the sciences. And of course it's the opposite way as well that where the scientific terms absolutely correspond <laughs> with, with all these musical terms, the, the uh, frequency domain and the um, well timbre relating to harmonic spectrum. And, and uh, it's funny because the things that you end up developing for the sciences 
to de- to deal with these things the um mathematical models and the computational models things like ffts and there's all sorts of of things like this but fft is a good one we now use in music all the time right because that allows us to separate uh or to to change frequencies pitch shift uh auto tune do all these things that then we can apply musically right and it's kind of fun because on my side of things where i'm developing things from a musical perspective i find things problems that we need to solve in computers um and computation to make things more real time faster more immediate uh be able to make it less computationally intensive so we don't have to run it on an hpc over a couple of weeks um but we can run it live and so we'll solve problems like that and it turns out that sometimes when we solve those problems the technology we develop and it ends up being useful or the approach that we develop ends up being useful for some sort of scientific um processes or approaches so it's 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 interesting the overlap but to be perfectly honest i think the best overlap and the most interesting overlap is the one that's um kind of conceptual and creative right where the, the some of the best scientists are the ones who have just an intuition about uh their their field and 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 make these really creative assumptions right and it's a very similar creativity to um having you know, being a music, a musician or, uh, and coming up with inspiration and, and developing something that is, is useful for making music. So it's, it's fun. It's fun to end up talking with scientists because you you end up, I end up getting inspired by a lot of things that they're experimenting with and trying out and trying to solve. And, uh, um, sometimes I'm able to offer (laughs) thoughts that are, that may be useful for them too. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Which tools, both hardware and software, do you use to create music and sounds? Oh, man. <laughs> anything. Anything? <laughs> let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, first off, like anything that makes a sound in my field is fair game for making into music. Okay. And my definition of music is way broader than <laughs> most people's. Um, so, so as far as the tools to create music and sounds i mean i i jump around all the time it's everything from i i know i've i've used and programmed in 15 to 20 different programming languages to do to achieve what i wanted to do right so if something is written in python that i want to try out i'll dive into python or java or javascript or ruby or whatever c plus plus objective c yeah you know the swift it yeah. just goes on and on because um typically these these the software or the the programming languages end up solving certain problems for different fields and but then they can be used musically so you kind of jump into that to do it um the software along the same lines there are you know very specific music ones or music related things right so every single daw in the universe is set up to be able to record edit produce interesting things but each one kind of has a different take on how You interface with it. And for me, using that in a studio is a performance act because I'm making the music. So when I jump into Ableton Live, I perform a certain type of music because that's what it helps me do, right? When I jump over into um, uh, Motu's, uh, Mar- uh, <laughs> I just lost the name of it, Digital Performer, right? Then I, I perform and compose in a different way because it enables me to use it. In a, in a more compositionally formatted way. Um, 
like traditionally compositionally. Uh, so that's, that happens. And then there's this sort of software middle ground and that's the place where I love to live, right? Because the things that are built for you enable you to do specific things really well, but not everything. There's always the time when you want to turn your knob from 10 to 11 and it can't go that far or to 3000 and see what happens. So in the middle ground, and, and then if you go back to the, you know, just the programming language, then you've got to build it from scratch or trust someone's framework to be doing something the right, the, the, the way that you need it done. Right. So in, in the middle ground, there are these tools that enable you to use programming language to extend what they've already built. So max MSP, uh, from cycling 74 is a, is a big one. It's actually a graphically oriented object oriented programming language. So you just chain these objects, these graphical objects together. Um, and they're a bunch that are pre-built that you can then just make them do what you need them to do to do audio processing, signal processing. Um, or you can write things in code in C, C++, or in JavaScript, or in Java, or in Python. There are just a bunch of ways to integrate this stuff. So if you, if you, <laughs> you can branch it out and connect it to all these other different parts and pieces from other places. And there are a lot of programming languages like this. I like that one because it, it's easy to, to get things rolling, to prototype. But there are others like Pure Data, PD, uh, which can then also run on, on uh, Raspberry Pis, on Android devices, on iOS devices and stuff. So that's nice and easy to use. Or things like uh, Chuck or Super Collider or uh, Jibber or Web Audio that, that allow you to construct to use the tools that are already built, but then extend them into things that I really want to try. And that's kind of the whole kit and caboodle of, of experimental music. Oh, I should mention the hardware side. <laughs> so the hardware side is the same thing. I, 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 we like to get new devices that interact with anything, because as long as it can get data into a computer, you can get it into an audio program and control audio. So the leap motion and connects and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's fun. But then we also sit in that realm where, you know, we're programming for Raspberry Pis and Arduinos and all of the variations of those, you know, ESP chips and whatever, MSP430s and whatever we need for a specific device. But then we can connect those to our own sensors, to our own, uh, you know, interfaces. We can embed them into things, create our own instruments that are not connected to a computer, but are, you know, connected to a Raspberry Pi computer and uh or a or arduino or or whatever that sort of thing is but then that can just be battery powered or plugged into a wall or solar powered or whatever it needs to be um and you kind of separate yourself from the computer but you interface with it through physical things at that point and that is a huge um area of development right now it's great yeah, talking about using different sources of sounds in your TEDx 2013, you spoke about sonic interventions where you took either your Chinese ball monotonous frequency or the the noise from the construction on the stadium a few miles away, I think, or I don't know which distance it was. You, you say you you talk about sonic intervention as a way to replace an acoustic environment with different sounds through digital digital manipulation. Can you explain? for listeners some of that concept yeah yeah so this one it's this has never gone away um so i i used to uh, help set up and then run a lab called the institute for digital intermedia art at ball state university and it was there that i got into 
branched out from music and got into more art works, right? And a lot into virtual worlds and what I like to call hybrid worlds. Um, you know, augmented reality is sort of like holding your phone up and you can see something that's not really there, but, you know, interacts with it. But a hybrid reality is where you end up having a mixture of things that are very virtual, but they're attached to things in physical space. And then you have things that are physical that attach to things that are virtual. And it turns out we're, as humans are very good right now and getting better um, at navigating these spaces seamlessly, so seamlessly that we don't even know that we're doing it, right? Um, the fact that we have a social network, and I'm talking about just the, the physical one, right, where we have friends and, and places we meet and, and people that we talk to. But then we also have that mimicked up in, in the cloud, right, or across computer devices and mediated through that. Um, and it extends pretty seamlessly between the two. In a similar way with the sonic intervention side of things, we have sound that we live in 24-7. It's here no matter what we do, and we get really good ignore- at ignoring it, right? Um, but then we replace it or we augment it with things all the time whether we put headphones on and then walk around, right? Or um, we, uh, well, you know, how many, how many times have you heard somebody just talking seemingly to, to themselves, but they're actually on the phone while they're just walking through a cross campus or, you know, the union. And it's, it's a strange place where we actually are able to replace the sound that we've always been in. And that for most of humankind, human history has not been the case, Right. You can't escape those sounds, but now we can. And so what does that mean? And what can we do with that artistically is I think a really interesting thing. We've got um, devices now, you know, that are mostly geared toward because it can be funded and it's, it's economically viable, right? You can make a business around this, but things that you would put in your ear that would do signal processing on the sound that's coming in so that you can hear things better, right? So they can amplify voices uh, so that you can tune out uh, noises that are that are going on, filter things out. They can uh, alert you to specific sounds that happen, right? So if it's tuning everything out, um, doing noise cancellation, that sort of thing, but then it hears something that's that indicates a danger, right? It can actually notify you of that. And we have these computers with us all the time. This can happen whenever we want, right? These now it's completely on board or can be completely on board. The thing you stick in your ear. So then why, when do we want that? How do we want that? And do we ever want that to be something that's, that makes something beautiful as opposed to make something that's utilitarian? And that's, that was kind of what that talk was about. Sort of, uh, we have these, these noises going on all the time. What would it be to replace them with? Or uh, we, that's the intervention term. It's actually from architecture. Anything you put into a space architecturally is intervenes in the in the flow and the interaction and the observation how you interact with that space, and so I, I like the idea of a sonic intervention. Any sound you put into a place or any sound you replace <laughs> from a place um, changes the way that you perceive it and that you interact with it and that you might enjoy it. So that's the idea that that uh, is coming from that. Yeah. Okay, let us lightly switch the topic. Before becoming an associate professor, you co-owned and run a company called ElectroTap mm -hmm. that created software and hardware for interactive art. 
You told that you were always a big proponent of open source software and hardware during this time. How can the goal of making profit and releasing open source software can be aligned? Oh man, that's a big can of worms. So there are a lot of different aspects of this. Because <laughs> uh, there are different goals for different things. Uh, the one that, that is should be the most obvious, but I don't think it's is quite is that open source software has a lot of different licenses, as you know, as yeah. you guys delve into here. Um, and so it's not like you're just giving away all of your intellectual property, unless you want to give away all the intellectual property and share it with everyone, right? You can do things where you share all the code and share the ideas, but then retain the right to license it to make money, right? And so that's one way of, of navigating that. It's not always the best way, I don't think. I think it's a purely human endeavor. I think having knowledge be open and free and available is by far the best case scenario. It'll, you know, progress will happen much faster. The concepts can spread better. They can, you know, it cannot be limited by, by these sort of brick walls that happen all over the place. However, we live in a at least in, in the Western society, in a very commercial and capitalistic society. We are built on capitalism. And one of the most important capital is, is that intellectual property, right? Your ideas are things that you can make money off of. And what's kind of useful or interesting about that is your ideas can make you money, whereas most capital is, is money can make you more money. So the idea then that you can have an idea or come up with a solution that can then help you economically is a, is a good thing, in, at least in, in the capitalistic world. So how do we navigate it now or how do we nav navigate that? Boy, the way that we did it with ElectroTap was kind of interesting. Um, we tried to open source everything and make it quite open so that people could make their own products off of the, the ideas that that we developed and the algorithms that we'd created and the objects and the, you know, the different snippets of code and that sort of thing. And then we made the products ourselves. And in our area that could work because there's not a lot of people, right? There's people, the people that would, there's, you would have to have enough money to make another company to then compete with us mm -hmm. to make that work. Um, whereas a lot of artists didn't even have enough money to buy our products but they might be able to educate themselves, especially with the internet and some of the articles and things we would write and make their own. And so for us, it was better to get our ideas out there and our technology out there. So artists could make interesting art with it than it was to necessarily make money. You know, in the end, that's probably why we, we closed the company down, right? We got distracted by things and yeah, you've got to make a lot of money to, to maintain that rolling. We did, we did well and it was fun. For about eight years, we sold things all over the world okay. and yeah, had artworks happen, but yeah, yeah. So were any of these users contributed back to the software or was it just using it? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. So yes, they did actually. And, uh, there were some interesting things we had. Um, well, I, I should mention this because we, we ran the company like a co-op, which was kind of interesting. So we had Tim Place and I were the, the founders and we owned it, but we would bring people on board for various projects. So we made um, 
took some of our software and made it into a suite of audio plugins for Cycling 74 called Hypno. And we brought in some friends. Nathan Wolek one of, was the primary one to then bring in what he was doing into this thing and then make a product and then be able to sell it. He brought his open source software in to make some plugins to be able to provide the same thing. So it was kind of a, anyway, another example of how to, to monetize it. But all the open source things we had up, I'm trying to even remember where, where it was before GitHub, right? <laughs> anyway, it's some open source repo. Uh, and we would have people many times sending in suggestions or, or, you know, what are now, you know, pull requests, but with, with various solutions or better, you know, tweaks, fixes, all that sort of stuff. We would, we also spun things off that we didn't want to try to monetize into their own open source projects. The biggest one of that was called Jamoma. And we had made a product called Jade, which um, allowed people to make interactive art on computers. And we open sourced that and we made this thing project called Jade Modules for Macs. And then that one took off and had its own board. We had a little workshops of couple, one or two a year for many years. Um, it's still up there, jamoma.org. But now, you know, after 12, 15 years, that one as well has now split off into other open source projects that are continuing the development of different avenues of these things. But yeah, yeah, that was, was, by, was by far the most kind of prominent and well, not necessarily, but, but it was, it was a good one and had a lot of participation. Okay. Coming back to the pull requests people did. So, because then we have to talk about copyright because somehow the person wrote the code mm -hmm. for the pull request has the copyright. How were you handling this? Because if it's going back to the software, somehow the copyright is transferred to the company or was this person a co-owner or co-copyright holder of the company? Right. Well, I think, yeah. So what we did on this was if you contributed to it, it went back under the same license that was, that it was released under. And almost all of the stuff we had done was like an MIT license. So it was very open. Um, people could monetize it. They could make products with it. It wasn't uh, yeah. Anyway, most of the, When I say most, I can't even think of a specific project that we didn't release that wasn't really widely open. So when they committed things or put things into it, um, they were basically saying that this is being released for the greater good or the good of the, the community. Okay, interesting. I'm trying to think of any time we used um, other people's software. Most of the time, we would prototype things. So we might bring in a framework to... Uh, get things rolling. And if we did, we would include that in the, you know, whatever the license restrictions were in the, in the release. But uh, most of the time we just tried to write our own versions of things to, to keep it clean and to not break when someone else updated their, their framework and stuff like that. Yeah. We'll go back to talk a bit more about your research. How is open source software involved in your research currently? Ooh, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's, it is everywhere because the most of the interesting developments that are happening in our field are happening in the open source area and then transfer over into, you know, behind the scenes companies and, and products and that sort of thing. And I, I kind of have a hunch as to why that's the case. Just there's not a lot of money in R and D for music. There, there's some, but But not for the really experimental kinds of things. 
Now there's a big push right now and there has to be because it's going to change a lot of things, but there's a big push right now into MIR music information retrieval into uh, deep learning and machine learning and how that can apply to music. So there's some corporate funding that's going into that. Um, there's always a little bit that's going into new algorithms for audio or signal processing, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not as much as, as things like MIR and, and machine learning. So at any rate, like the, the way it affects things that there's open source things that are being tried everywhere. And so we jump on those and then use them for their intended purpose of trying to make music. And then as you do that, you run into the rough edges, right? You can see that the interface for this one is not going to be very useful for musicians. So maybe we work on that or the, perhaps there's an implementation of MIR algorithms is really good, but not the signal processing things that you could do live. Right. And so how do you marry two, two frameworks together to make it so that you can do something with MIR that can be performed um, on stage and with other people. Uh, And so, you know, we basically are working on these things. We contribute some things back. Other things are just experiments and they are, they happen once and then we move on to the next, next thing that would be, would be better. But it, yeah, it affects everything that we do. Okay. Do you use open source operating systems such as Linux and uh, open source uh, DAW such as Ardor? Uh, yes. Yeah. So um, I, don't, I don't use Ardor much. I've done it before, but, you know, for most things, I'll end up just getting um, Audacity, which is another open source thing. Uh, Ardor is much more fully fleshed out, but most of the time, if I'm needing that, I jump back into one that's more like oh, it doesn't matter <laughs> studio one live logic you know it whatever's whatever's on the computer i'm using okay yeah it's it's a tool at that point right 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 um so but as far as the the software types of things like the max and pure data and um uh chuck or super collider uh, those kinds of things um max is actually the only one that's monetized which is kind of an interesting thing and it, it was actually a Uh, an offshoot of Max, JMax, and then Pure Data. They all had the same similar format. In fact, the patches that you built with them could be, at the beginning, were interchangeable. At any rate, so they have a very similar approach. The open source version is wonderful and can run over on uh, Raspberry Pi. So using Raspberry Pi, I, mean, I do Linux a lot. I, I run a, most of my cloud-based applications and things are running off of Linux. But the... But the Max MSP version ended up becoming a corporate product, right? And then, but with a community of open source developers. So people <laughs> people who would make patches were freely shareable and usable all over the place, any of their patches. But the core application and the interface that they kept developing to make better and more usable and, you know, UX and all, all that sort of stuff, different types of design was all being supported by having people pay to use the product. So it's, that was uh, another interesting uh, kind of development in this whole realm is this sort of hybrid. It's a, it's a split between being open source, like the community side of things. Although people can make products out of it, you can roll it into an application and sell it on the app store or an executable file and do that on windows. But uh, yeah, anyway, 
We noticed that you have a project called Nexus JS, which is uh, specialized toward people who want to develop arts connecting people through web browsers. Uh, for you talked about your network performances uh, or interactive installations. Can you explain what is a network performance? Oh yeah. Yeah, so one of the things doing the hybrid worlds and virtual world stuff that got me really interested was the ability for people anywhere to join together and do things, right? So make art, socialize, do, and of course, do performances, right? Be quite fun. And the, the tools that we have now that are available to us for networking are so much more, so much more developed. <laughs> They're just really interesting. A lot of things can be real-time or near real-time. And so, you know, the, the thing that's been tried many times and, and done quite well, especially when you have, you know, what is the Internet 2 and um, various really fast pipelines, is to be able to have one live performer, acoustic performer on one end, and stream to the other side, and the other performer on the other side of the network and stream back to the other side. And, you know, depending on how far apart they are on the planet, you know, you've got a, quite a bit of delay. At the very least, the the delay of the speed of light right from that distance uh and but you can get it close enough to be able to perform well together right And there's been a lot of experimentation with that over the last 50 years actually but stuff now and i think it's kind of a little more interesting is that because people are more used to interacting through their devices you can have them inter interact for musical and artistic experiences so The tools that I was building were built on basic web technologies. First, it was through um, just various scripts of who knows which kind, you know, Python, Perl, whatever at the time, uh, and then kind of moved on up to Ruby on Rails, which is what I had a lot of fun with. And then now it's on to Node and JS and, and that sort of thing, because it's a little more integrated with, with the rest of the, the web world. But but once you have this web application, just about any application on any computer that's networked, right, can connect to it and then share with each other or change a database of information. So we were when we first started this, we were making some projects that were cell phone based. Well, there was a lot of, of other stuff before that, but like the first really web, really portable stuff was cell phone based and would do things like detect where you were, so geographically, and then In specific locations, like the quad at LSU, we would have a synthesizer be in that space or be that space virtually. And if you were there and opened up our page, then you had control over some aspect of it. And if someone else joined in, then they had control over it. And and people could perform together, whether they knew who the other person was or not, but they were interacting with and generating the music of that location. So they had controls, they would be relayed to the various different people who were connected, the clients, right? And then the clients would then be rendering the sound for that for that space. And you could do things that were interesting, like we had that as be an instrument, but we also had other ones that were, it was music, you know? So you could compose for the walk between the School of Music and the Center for Computation and Technology. And as you went through it, then you changed, you, depending on which directions you went and stuff like that, you made a different composition. Or if you turned around, it would go backwards. But stuff like that. I, you know what? I'll, I'll explain one in particular, and I think this will make more make a little more sense. We made a piece called Humming Mississippi. This is Derek Ostrenko and I. And we took, we worked with some scientists here at CCT and in oceanography. Anyway, they were studying river systems. 
and we we were able to get 3D scans of the Mississippi River, and we took those 3D scans and had them milled into pieces of wood, planks of wood, and hung those up. And then I attached little tactile transducers, kind of like the back part of a speaker, to the wood panels, and then I could pipe sound into it. But I was piping little taps into it, so it would, depending on how it was carved, it would make have different resonance. Um, so these planks of wood would all have these different resonances, and then we could play across it. And with that, we went ahead and had a web app that scraped an NOAA site, a National Oceanographic Site, which had buoys up and down the river. And we would grab the information from the buoys for the salinity and the height and the flow rate and the uh, pH and uh, a bunch of different parameters. And then I used those to sonify through the through the wood panels. So that was stage one. And it made this sort of standalone art piece that changed over time. At stage two, we went ahead and made a model of that on a web browser so that you could touch these panels. And um, as you did, it would actually, anyone else who was logged into it, you would end up playing these sort of humming kinds of sound on anybody else's uh, laptop or, or device. But it would also be sent to the installation and the panel that you were touching would actually start humming as well. And so it was just used to connect everything from our website about the project to anyone else who was viewing the website to the actual artwork itself. And that's, that's part of that whole distributed performance kind of a, kind of a thing. That's where that started. And then it went a lot of weird places after that. Yeah, I think it makes things more clear, which is a nice example. So let us take another point of view. Let us talk about flaws and its importance for the openness of science and music. Mm. Why do you think flaws is important for arts and science? Oh, man. Um, boy, I, sharing of knowledge is incredibly important. And I think things are happening so fast, or the ability for things to happen is... It's going so quickly that waiting for, you know, being able to publish it through the traditional channels is not, it's not that it's not viable. We need that actually for validation and verification of the quality of work that's going on, right? And to be able to have a, a very centralized place to look, to be able to go to specific journals and say, yes, this is the, the core of work. Now, that may be the, the cutting edge of work two years ago. Right or more yeah. when it comes out, but at the very least, it it is solidifying where very you know and sharing the ideas that are behind this this very solid work. Right, whereas the stuff that we have in so there's there's sort of the high end journal articles. Then there's the conferences, which is much more immediate, but still that's six months to a year behind because mm -hmm. it's been documented, and then now you're finally presenting it, and by that point you're miles past whatever it is. Um, but then you end up with that, the, the last set where you, if you have an open source project that you're working on, you end up, it, it's always the cutting edge, right? And even the, the latest release, you know, stable release is going to be only, if it's active, could be only days or maybe a month or something like that behind, behind the cutting edge developments. So it gets, gets it out to lots of people quicker, broader. The other side of things is the open source side of things, right? Because if it's done in a company, it needs to be main or contained so that it can be monetized. 
And there are a lot of companies now that are doing and contributing to open source projects, which is wonderful. And I think the reason they're able to do that is they define what they do and monetize. They want to streamline it so that they can be the most efficient. And so if it falls, if what they're working on falls outside of that category, then they are willing to open source it, which I think is absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So why is it important? I mean, it's the, just the sharing of ideas, the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of, of concepts and, and experimentation is is necessary. And I think Floss enables that to happen. Do you think that Floss can have negative impacts on science or art? Oh, man. Playing the devil's advocate there. <laughs> yeah. There are certain aspects of it that can, absolutely. So, you know, depending on what licenses you choose and stuff, things can be things can inhibit, right? So that you can see that there's an idea out there, but you can't use it unless you license it. You can uh, do things where it becomes, um, yeah, the attribution side of things, where if you're running a project that pulls together a lot of different things, you may have hundreds of attributions that have got to be, you know, maintained and, and kind of kept up. But that's not a big negative. You know, those are things that, the positives far outweigh the negatives, I think, in this case. Navigating it is, is tricky. And being at an educational institution is pretty tricky already because they, <laughs> institutionally, they, they recognize the value of, of floss, but they also are under extreme pressure on how to fund everything, right? Like a business, but, but having to have different moral approaches <laughs> right uh so that they can't monetize they can't just sell things so they do have to balance what what they are able to release and what they can't and because of that it makes it really difficult um for for developers like us to do i've been fortunate that for the most part even if there's something that can be monetarily used monetarily that i develop being from the music side of things it's typically something that would be monetized and would be small enough amounts that the university can't, you know, doesn't have enough throughput to even bother with it. So they, they are able to release it and have it go out to the world, which is cool. Do you think that anyone can create or should create music? Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say anyone can and everyone should. Absolutely. Because it just gives you a different, It's a different perspective. Like, how do you convey something without using your traditional language? You know, what is it that you want to share? Also, it's one of the few art forms that absolutely is required to, to be, to deal with time, right? Every sound event follows one another, no matter what order you put it in, right? And it has, has meaning. One thing leads to the next, leads to the next, or it doesn't. And you've got to navigate that over a certain amount of time and just being able to do that and it, it just well just trying to do that gives you a better understanding of how how we ne negotiate time how we navigate that it also is really interesting because this sound is really an abstract quality right it's an abstract thing that we are able to perceive but when you interface with it you're interfacing with objects or you know recordings or timelines or that sort of thing. And how do you navigate the interface to this sound, which is very abstract and, and the, the relationship between them or the way to manipulate them. So they do what you want them to do. So for me, 
like as a computer scientist, that's brings up a huge can of worms. <laughs> like how, how do you interact with it? How do you visualize it? When, if I listened to, you know, a half an hour podcast or an hour long podcast, it takes a half an hour, an hour to do it once. But if I want to edit this thing, I've got to be able to do that without listening to the whole thing. You know, how do you navigate that? And it's an interesting, it's just lots of interesting problems. And I think that we kind of understand our world a little better too when we, when we get ourselves listening. Yeah. Yeah. Deeply listening. Okay. We are almost done with the interview and we will proceed with some of our classic questions that we ask all of our interviewees. In recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? Oh man, the most, most notable. It's a tough one. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, be, from being from Louisiana, I'm going to have to say the gravitational wave, the LIGO, um, uh, yeah, laser interferometer, gravitational observatory, and proving uh, Einstein's theory of, or of well, theories right about gravity and uh and all of that that's huge yeah it's so far beyond anything uh yeah it, it's just amazingly huge and i i gotta say that the discovery was huge the the second one may have been the third but anyway the one where they saw the two neutron stars saw the collision and then sent then radio that out to all these observatories all around the world and had them point their um, uh, telescopes and stuff out there to get visual uh, video or, you know, images of this happening. That maybe even more, right? Because the first one, yeah, it proved it correct, but this made it into something that was actually useful and able to predict things that were going to be happening. And that, man, that's, that was crazy. So anyway, that one for me was even maybe even more impressive. Okay. So next question. What is your favorite text processing tool? I use a lot. Um, <clears throat> TextMate is one that I used a lot. It was a Mac only thing. And now it's kind of going out of, uh, of support. Um, but I still use it quite a bit. But I've been kind of shifting over to VS Code because I can use that all over the place. Different machines and stuff. And they all kind of interact the same. And it's sort of like an IDE, but not an IDE, which is, I like that. Anyway, I guess you can kind of set it up like an IDE. But anyway, it's, uh, that one's been pretty useful. I do a lot of uh, stuff, you know, from the terminal to compile things and transpile stuff. And so being able to have that all integrated in one spot has, has been useful. But I, you know, I, you, you made a couple suggestions about them. I use Markdown all the time for everything from slides to to documentation, to just taking notes and stuff like that. So that's incredibly useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, you know what? I want to mention one other thing that I think is super, super cool about the LIGO thing. And that's one of the things that's so interesting to me specifically is that it's all signal processing, like everything from their instrumentation detection, right? It's just transducing the changes, the detection of a change in a, or diffraction of a, a deflection of a, of a laser to uh, the the gravitational wave was in the audio realm. So you can actually just listen to it straight up or you can listen to the version where they transpose it up an octave so that you could hear it. Right. And all those, those processes, signal processing things were things that I use all the time just for slightly different purposes. 
there's a research area here, a research focus here at the CCT. It's called uh, Coast to Cosmos, which is basically they're just using wave, yeah, wave modeling and algorithms and and that sort of thing to analyze how the uh, the uh, hurricanes might might function, or uh, gravitational waves, or anything in between, <clears throat> including our our experimental music side of things kind of lands <laughs> more towards the hurricane side of things but but with the same algorithms the same math the same types of computation which has always been remarkable to me and uh somewhat humbling which is cool okay this will conclude our questions for now thank you jesse for your time and in this interview is there anything else you would like to share with us or is there anything we forgot to ask you about oh man I don't think so. Or, well, I take that back. I'm sure there is, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's much more that needs to be covered. It's good. Okay. So, yeah, thank you very much for this interview. If any of our listeners want to talk to you, how should they contact you? Oh, yeah. So, um, probably the best way would just be through the email at, at LSU. So, it's jtallison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at lsu.edu. Um, or you can go to the emdm.lsu.edu website and uh, and reach us through there, either through email or through the contact form there. Yeah, that's probably best. Okay, good. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. This month, we have something special for the outro music. We have a sample of Sonic Intervention prepared by Jesse, where he modifies sounds from a close-by construction site to transform them into music. You can get more information from Aesthetics Talk of 2013 available on YouTube. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.